It's always a, a, an honor to be here, and it's great to see you guys. You know, it's interesting, whenever I have this opportunity, which is probably once every maybe two years to speak to you guys, it's always the question, what am I going to talk about? As you know, our pastor, he, he has the... Um, uh, 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 the great benefit of being able to go through a book of scripture. So each week, he he his message is kind of a, he doesn't have to worry about it when he's going to talk about it. It's it's there for him. And certainly, I believe even uh, when Joe is filling in and when uh, uh, Ken are filling in, they are you're going through books of the Bible. I believe Joe, you're going through is it Colossians. Is that right? And Ken is going through Ephesians. Of course, at the rate Ken is going, he will not be done before the second coming. But, but I have this opportunity to just pull out anything I want. And whenever I think about what I'm going to talk about, uh, I always kind of go into one of two areas. Maybe it's something that I am really, I, I've really studied it. It's something I really know a lot about, which isn't a lot of things. <laughs> the other thing is I can talk about something that maybe it's something I struggle with, something that is an area of need in my life, uh, an area where maybe I need improvement. And I have a much wider uh, selection to choose from when I go that route. And that's what I've done today uh, when we talk about worship. Um, so with that in mind, let's take our Bibles and, and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. As we read in this morning's text, Jesus is traveling through Samaria on his way back to Galilee. And he has what I believe is a divinely appointed encounter with a Samaritan woman who we learn is living in a sinful relationship with a man who is not her husband. Now, keep in mind that it would have been scandalous for a proper Jew to even speak to this woman, given, given the fact that she was a Samaritan, but also given the fact that she was a, a person of some reproach. But Jesus takes it further than just talking to her, doing something that only God himself can do when he extends to her the, the living water of saving grace and reveals himself to be the Messiah. And by the way, when I was preparing for this, I went back and... Um, uh, listen to uh, some of what Pastor Harold talked about. This is going back to January 2014, I believe. You can go back and listen to that, and I highly recommend you do. He gives you a, a, a picture of the bigger context here, and he does a great job. But intertwined within this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman is a very important discussion about worship. And just beginning in verse 20, the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, understand something here. Because the Samaritans did not believe in the authority of the full Old Testament Scripture, they only believed in the authority of the Pentateuch. So they did not understand the divine mandate behind worshipping in Jerusalem. And so instead, they established a place of worship at Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And Jesus responds to the woman in verse 21. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Um, keep in mind that Jesus, he is in the process of ushering in a, a new covenant and instead of allowing the Samaritan woman to take the discussion in some area of religious controversy, focusing on ceremonial law that will soon be obsolete, Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. And in verse 22, he says to her, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Again, because the Samaritans refused to accept the authority of the whole of the Old Testament Scripture, their knowledge was limited. They chose to live in partial darkness. So even if they were worshiping with a, a heartfelt enthusiasm, they were not worshiping in truth. On the other hand, 
There were the Jews, God's chosen vessel through which he would bring the message of salvation to the world. They had truth, but they had perverted it with traditions. They were religious externalists, and their worship had become a lifeless, heartless, outward performance of the flesh. They did not worship in spirit. And so Jesus continues in verse 23, But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. In other words, it's not about where you worship. It's about who you worship. It's about how you worship. That's the idea. With the ushering in of the new covenant, the gospel is going to go into all parts of the world. God is going to pour out His Spirit and give His word to people of all nations, and truth will no longer be confined to Israel. Jerusalem will no longer be the the central dwelling place of God among His people, but God will instead dwell in the hearts of His people. And unlike the worship practiced by the Samaritans or the external self-serving worship that was common among the Jews, those who worship the Father will do so in spirit and truth. Those are the types of worshipers that the Father seeks, the type of worshipers that truly honor Him. And then, in what I think is the most important statement on worship in the New Testament, Jesus draws this home saying in verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, worship. Uh, Especially what Jesus is explaining about worshiping in spirit and truth here in verse 24. Now, when we talk about worshiping God, I think there are a couple of different senses in which we typically use the word. First, there's worship in the broad sense. Uh... Uh, which we apply to all of life. As many of you know, humans are religious by nature. In our, in our daily living, we are either worshiping the one true God or we are worshiping something else, right? And for the Christian, everything in our life should be an act of worship directed toward the one true God. This is essentially what Paul is saying to us uh, or to the church in Rome in Romans 12.1 where he says, I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which, your, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, after explaining in the first 11 chapters of Romans the many works, the many blessings that the Lord has done on our behalf, Paul essentially says there is only one fitting response on the part of the Christian. We must give ourselves wholly and totally to God. We are to live our lives in worshipful submission to God. Paul also speaks of worship in a broad sense in 1 Corinthians 10.31 where he instructs the Corinthian church saying, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All that we do, even the the most mundane of acts, should be carried out in a way that honors God. To worship God in the broader sense means that we are always, we are always operating with God at the, the, the forefront of our being. Honoring Him should govern every aspect of who we are, All that we think, all that we do should be done to His glory. That is what it means to worship in the broader sense. But there is also worship in a a formal sense. While all of our lives are, are to be acts of worship directed toward God, God has also established and expects His people to come together on a regular basis for a special time of worship in which our hearts and minds are collectively focused on Um, exalting him and that's what we're doing here this morning we refer to this as corporate worship and while there is unquestionably some overlap between corporate worship and worship in the broader sense 
Our passage today is dealing specifically with corporate worship. That's what I want to talk uh, to you about this morning. Now, before I get started on that, I want you to know that this is not a message about liturgy. Uh, That is not to say that liturgy isn't important. Certainly there are principles and guidelines that regulate the things we do when we worship. And there's much debate in the church as a whole, even within this body, on on what is appropriate and what is not when it comes to liturgy. But that's an issue for another time. My goal this morning is to discuss worship at its core, to examine what should be going on in, in both our minds and hearts when we worship God. So with that in mind, I just want to introduce the matter of worship, first of all, by stating that I think that the church at large, and, and especially the church here in America, I think we have a serious problem when it comes to worship. Like the Samaritan woman in our scripture text, many in the church, even many genuine believers, they're quite frankly, they're ignorant of God's word. They don't understand who God is. Some are in a bad churches and have weak teaching, but perhaps more applicable to some of us here, some for a variety of reasons just have little or no interest in the things of God. And so they are not in the Word. They remain in a constant state of spiritual immaturity or worse. And their worship suffers because of it. Likewise, many in the church are externalists who have essentially canonized their traditions and preferences. For them, whether they realize it or not, worship focuses on the outward. It is often about liturgy or ritual. It's about dressing a certain way or singing a, a specific uh, song or playing a specific style of music. Now, I agree with R.C. Sproul when he says that tradition and formality in worship, those aren't necessarily bad things. I mean, you know, the Reformation was not a protest against tradition in general, right? It was a protest against what? It was a protest against traditions that dishonored God. It was a, a, a protest against giving tradition the same weight as the Word of God. But that's essentially what tra- uh, externalists do. They, they see their traditions or preferences as being indicators of spirituality. If you really love God, you'll do things this way or, or you won't do things that way. And it's not long until these externals become the the focal point of worship, overshadowing what is going on in the heart of the worshipers. I'm reminded of what Jesus said to the Jewish leaders in Matthew 15 when he quoted Isaiah saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so we need to ask ourselves, Am I experiencing genuine worship in my life? What does my worship look like? Am I worshiping Him well? Am I worshiping God in a way that pleases and truly honors Him? And that's why these words from John 4, particularly the words from verse 24, are so important for us this morning. As I said earlier, I believe this is the... the, quintessential statement in the New Testament regarding worship because it literally cuts to the heart of what Christian worship should look like. And for those, if you want an outline, I've broken my message down into three parts. What it means to worship, what it means to worship in spirit, and what it means to worship in truth. So let's talk about first what it means to worship. In our text, worship is taken from the Greek word proskuneo, which means to kiss the hand or, or to bow down. It was a means of giving reverence to or an honor to someone of superior rank or standing. It was common, for example, in ancient Rome and in many other cultures, by the way, for a, 
a subject to give homage to the emperor by bowing down and kissing the signet ring on his hand. In Scripture, we see this word and its Old Testament counterpart used of giving homage to men, to idols, to heavenly beings, even to demons. But when it, we see it used to, of giving homage to God, the, the, the concept of worship takes on a special significance. For example, in Luke 4, when the devil promises that he will give to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he will only bow down and worship him, Jesus, hearkening back to Deuteronomy, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, I don't think Jesus is suggesting that we can't give due reverence to other people, but what he is saying is that there is a a special type of reverence, a special type of honor, a special type of adoration, of, of exaltation that is above all others and that is reserved for God and God alone. To help explain this even further, I think we have a great illustration in Exodus 30. As you know, while in the wilderness, God had his people build a tabernacle so they would have a place to worship. And he gave very specific instructions on how worship was to be carried out. In Exodus 30, beginning in verse 37, after giving a specific recipe for making incense that was to be used in worship, God says, And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. So what is this? Why does God deal so harshly with someone who uses the same recipe to make incense for personal use? Why does he do that? Well, in the tabernacle, the fragrance of incense represented the the prayers of the people going up to God. It was therefore set apart and reserved for him alone. To make the same incense for personal use was not only disobedient, It was to ignore God's unique place as the only worthy recipient of the special exaltation that is set apart especially for Him alone. And that is the case with our worship. When we come together each Sunday to sing praises, to hear the Word, we are praising and exalting Him in a way that is unique, in a way that is is set apart. We are ascribing to him something that is so special that it cannot rightly be given to any other person or being. So that is the technical idea of worship. But to really understand it, we need to to see what it looks like. What is it that makes Christian worship of God so unique? And there are many things we could list, but, but this morning I just want to give you a couple. First, Christian worship will always be God-centered. Christian worship will always be God-centered. Not man-centered, not me-centered, God-centered. Now, maybe that is an obvious statement. No kidding. Worship of God should be God-centered. But in a very real and practical sense, this is a key area where many Christians struggle. It is our nature to be self-centered. Our lives revolve around our wants, our needs, our opinions, what we think is important, and so on. And even for the Christian, we don't necessarily quit being self-centered just because we're believers. I mean, I haven't got that down. Maybe some of you have that down, Pat. I don't. We found a way to make church about us. To give you some examples, let me ask, have you ever heard yourself say this? You know, I really didn't get much out of the sermon today. You ever said that? Uh, I really wasn't moved by the pastor's message today. Or maybe you're saying, I don't like what's going on in a particular ministry over here. I don't like that song. I don't like that style of music. Have you ever said those things? 
Now, granted, some of these things may be said in an innocent way, but more often than not, we say these things because we come to church and we worship with more of a a self-focused mindset to see what we can get out of worship rather than what we can give back to God. I really recently read a story about Abraham Lincoln in, in which an elderly lady uh, uh, asked to see him. She had no official business, but she asked to see him, and, and he graciously agreed. When she entered his office, he stood up and asked how he might be of service, and she said, I'm not here to ask a favor. I'm here to offer you a gift. You see, the lady had heard that Lincoln liked gingerbread cookies, and so she baked some for him. And Lincoln was, was so moved that his eyes teared up. And he said, quote, You are the very first person who has ever come into my office asking not, expecting not, but rather bringing me a gift. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now, not to take the illustration too far, but I think God must feel a lot like Lincoln on Sunday mornings sometimes. Time and time again as he... he looks into our hearts for adoration, for a spirit that delights in honoring him. He finds a, a room full of people, most of whom have an attitude, of worship, or an attitude toward worship of, you know, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? Now, just so there's no confusion, let me say, it's okay to come to church and, and expect to be blessed. Uh, I hope all of you came here this morning expecting that the time of musical praise would be a blessing, and it certainly was. I, I, I hope that all of you came here this morning, and uh, by the grace of God, you will be blessed by something that comes forth from this pulpit. But saints, let me tell you, if you come here this morning to get something from it, and that's your primary purpose, then you've missed the most important part of being here. The most important part. Let me put it another way. When saints come together and the word goes forth, blessings will abound always and and without question. But if we are not giving God the worship he deserves and demands if we are not giving god you see what i'm saying here the worship that that he deserves and demands we are missing out on our highest calling as children of god our highest calling let's not allow our worship to become an abstraction but let's remember that genuine worship revolves involves the real giving of ourselves to God. And guess what? We still get to enjoy God all the more. In fact, when our worship is an expression of, of, of genuine adoration, it completes our joy. Think about it. When you speak a sincere word of praise to your wife, to your husband, to your children, to someone you care about, your delight in whatever attribute you are praising is not complete until it is expressed, right? It feels good to genuinely sing the praises of people we love. Well, how much more is that the case with God? When we give God our sincere worship, God is pleased and we delight in Him all the more. Another thing I'd like to say about worship is that it is about honoring a God who, by His very nature, deserves our worship. Deserves our worship. If you look at the etymology of the English word worship, and probably some of you know this, you will see that it comes from the word worthy. Worthship. When we worship God, we are affirming His true worth. You see that? We are affirming His true worth. 
We are saying God alone is worthy of having the spotlight on himself, worthy of our highest praise and honor. This is exactly what David proclaims in Psalm 18, beginning in verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And why is God worthy? Why is God worthy of praise? Because of who he is. God-centered worship is always or will always exalt God, always exalt the Lord in light of his attributes. Some of these attributes like absolute sovereignty, omnipresence, immutability, the fact that he is infinite and so on, these are qualities that God alone possesses. But God has also made communicable attributes uh, that he passes to, to people who were made in his image. Qualities like goodness, wisdom, knowledge, jealousy, holiness, righteousness, and so on. Of course, in our case, these attributes have been polluted, but with God, they exist in absolute perfection. They are qualities through which we come to know God, and these are the qualities that make God worthy of the special praise he receives. And so quite naturally, they become the focal point of our worship. And we don't just list these attributes in worship, although listing them is fine, but, but we exalt God because we see and experience these, these things meaningfully played out both in history and in our own lives personally. For example, it's one thing to say that, that God is eternal, omnipotent, faithful, just, merciful, but it's another to proclaim, as the psalmist does in Psalm 146, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my Lord while I have being. Blessed is he whose hope is in the Lord, his God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoners free and opens the eyes of the blind. Do you see how the, the psalmist worship, it's not just some cold listing of God's qualities. He sees these attributes played out in the works of God and now they are the motivation behind his worship. And even if the attributes of God are not explicitly mentioned, they are always in the forefront of our worship. I think, for example, about the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that, uh, by Martin Luther. Uh, in that one line alone, we are praising God for his strength, for his dependability, for his compassion. When we sing that one line, we are exalting a God that we can depend on to protect us from the enemy. And what a beautiful picture uh, of how God-centered worship affirms those qualities in God that affect us in the most meaningful of ways. So Christian worship will always be God-centered. Christian worship will also be gospel-centered. It's important that we remember that the gospel call is not just a call to get saved, it's a call first and foremost to worship. Earlier I mentioned the incense and how God established the tabernacle so his people would have a place to worship. Well, as many of you know, the various parts of the tabernacle, the altar of sacrifice, the, the laver for cleansing, the, the tabernacle uh, or the table of showbread, the holy place, the holy of holies and so on, all of these things were types that pointed to the saving, life-giving work of Christ. So even in the Old Testament, God established worship with the gospel in mind. You see, worship has always been gospel-centered. Worship is about shining a light on the atoning work of God. And when our worship is truly God-centered, 
when it praises those qualities that make God, God, it will naturally highlight those attributes that move God to give us the gospel. And the more we understand the gospel, the more we understand that salvation is is all of God and that we bring absolutely nothing to the table except for what? Our sin, right? When we understand that, the more precious our worship becomes. And, And this is the truth that prompted John Calvin to write these words. Men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and and obey Him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to His mercy. So we worship God because He's worthy. But as redeemed saints, we now have the capacity, we now have the, the motivation to worship with more intimacy, with more passion, with, with, with more understanding. Does that make sense? Well, if we understand what it means to worship God and that that is truly our highest calling, we must also understand how we are to worship. And that brings us to our, uh, the second part of my outline here, what it means to worship in spirit. The word spirit here. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit, although the Holy Spirit is certainly important, and we'll talk about that here in a second. But it's talking about the human spirit. Because of the very nature of who God is, true worship must take place in the spiritual realm. Worshiping in spirit is worshiping from the heart, from the inner man. It's not about, as the Samaritan woman believed, where you worship. It's not about being in the right place or to to bring the idea uh, to our day. It's not about having the right type of church building, uh, about wearing the right clothes, about playing the right kind of music. No, it's about what's going on inside the hearts and minds of the worshipers. It's, It's about our spirit intimately connecting with the Spirit of God as we exalt the Most High. David provides a great example of this when he says in Psalm 51, beginning in verse 15, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Mary, likewise, in Luke 1, beginning in verse 46, uh, she describes worshiping in the Spirit when she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now contrast what we see uh, from Mary and from David with what we see from the Jewish leaders that I, uh, from Matthew 15 that I mentioned earlier. This people honors me with their lips, but what? Their heart is far from me. Saints, we could come to church and our worship team, they could pick out all the right songs. They could lead us in a a perfect worship service. Never miss a note, creating something musically that has never been done. The greatest ever. Our pastor could preach the perfect sermon, get every point of doctrine exactly right, never lose his train of thought, and just communicate with perfect theological clarity. But is that really worship? It's not unless what? Unless the heart is there. It may be grand, it may be of of the highest quality externally, But if our spirit does not make that connection with the Spirit of God, then it isn't worship that honors God. Let me ask you, how often do we get caught up in the externals of worship, so caught up in the externals of worship, that we forget uh, uh, what worship is really about? Or how about this, when 
the externals are not to our liking, how often do we use that as, as an excuse not to worship? Think about that. Perhaps if worship were about pleasing ourselves, then, okay, that would have merit, but it's not. Worship is about giving back to God. It's about honoring a God who is worthy and is giving us more than we could ever pay back. Whether we love the external things or not, it doesn't matter. Our God deserves our utmost praise without allowing ourselves to be distracted by lesser things. Now, maybe some of you are struggling to worship in spirit. And again, I'll go back to uh, something I said earlier. I mean, part of the reason I'm bringing this message here, this is something that, that I admit that sometimes I don't do this as well as I feel I should. If you're like me, there are several reasons why this may be the case. And I'm just going to list a few things and, and, and hopefully this will be an encouragement to you. Or, and, and hopefully, maybe it'll step on your toes a little bit. It steps on my toes, certainly. But the first thing, maybe you struggle with worship because you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, Wayne Grudem in his very well-known systematic theology referring to our text here in John 4.24 he says quote ultimately worship is a spiritual activity and it must be empowered by the Holy Spirit working within us so um, worship is a spiritual activity that the Holy Spirit has to be working inside of us and if it's not uh, I mean just kind of bringing it down to two simple reasons. First, maybe you're not a believer. Maybe the Holy Spirit's not working in you because you don't know God. And if that's the case, I can't, I can't do the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. I can't do that. There's nothing that, that, that I can make happen. But if you're not a believer... And, and you feel the Holy Spirit convicting your heart, if you feel the Holy Spirit working inside of you, you know, challenging you in this, I would simply say, put your trust in Christ. Don't, don't let another second go by. Trust in Christ. But even for believers, even for believers, we struggle to worship not because we don't possess the Holy Spirit, but because we continually ignore, we continually grieve the Holy Spirit. We struggle because we ignore Paul's command from Ephesians 5.18 that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Being filled with the Holy Spirit means it's not about receiving the Spirit, it's about relinquishing control of our lives to the Spirit of God. To be filled with the Spirit means to continually allow God to guide our thinking, our doing. So if you're struggling with worship, it may be that you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. It may be that, that, that you are allowing other things to control your lives, to, to uh, uh, control your daily living. It, let me put it another way. If you're struggling to worship in the formal sense, if you're struggling in corporate worship, it's probably because you're struggling in worship in the broader sense. Does that make sense? Maybe you struggle to worship because, uh, in the Spirit because you're not giving the Word a central place in your life. Maybe you're not giving the Word a central place in your life. The Word of God doesn't just inform us it also it moves it convicts us it pierces our heart and when we neglect to read and learn god's word when we fail to meditate on its truths we are going to struggle when it comes to worship now our pastor often asks the question do you find church to be boring do you find church to be boring 
Well, if you do, don't blame the worship leaders. Uh, don't blame the preacher. It's not an indictment on them. It's an indictment on your heart. It's an indictment on your lack of church, I mean, uh, uh, of spiritual discipline. Singing praises to our Lord and, and, and hearing God's word exposited is not something that we should be indifferent about. It should be something that we cherish, something that we, we look forward to. But when we fail to live with the word throughout the week, when our minds and hearts are focused elsewhere because we neglect the word, we are far less likely to be ready for worship on Sunday. By contrast, when our hearts and minds, when we meditate on the word, when our hearts focus on those, those amazing truths, those amazing characteristics of God, when we see just how wonderful He is, when we contemplate all those attributes that led God to save us from a life in misery separated from Him, how can we not be on our knees and humble praise to the Most High, right? It should drive us to our knees. It should drive us to worship. Along those same lines, maybe you struggle to worship in spirit because you have a divided heart. Said another way, I think many of us struggle with worship simply because there are things more important to us than God. Now, we don't like to say that, but, but what's the reality? What's the reality of your life? We may give lip service to God being our highest priority, but in reality, is it? You know, when I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think of the rich young man in Matthew 19 who asked Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? You're familiar with the story. As the story unfolds, we learn that uh, the young man is not only a self-righteous legalist, but he is also an idolater who values his possessions more than he does his neighbor and more than he does God. Like many today, he wanted eternal life and all the benefits of being a worshiper of God, but he wanted to do it how? On his own terms. What's the expression? Have his cake and eat it too, right? Let me ask you, do you struggle to worship in spirit because there is something in your heart that keeps you from fully devoting yourself to God, from fully giving yourself over to Him? Tozer said it well when he wrote, we must never rest until everything inside of us worships God. If you struggle in this area, and, and, and here's the reality, we all do at some level. Whether it is with material things or something else, do not be in denial like the young man. Do not be in denial. This young man, by the way, this young man, is he not the poster child for the danger of wealth that Jesus describes in Matthew 6? No. He's the poster child. Instead of being like that, recognize your struggles, confess them, pray about them, and be persistent about just continually renewing your, not, your, your mind. Get in the Word. Let it, let it, let it, let it penetrate your hearts. Let it, let it transform your thinking. Your, your, uh, uh, let it transform who you are as a person. You know, following God, it, it takes sacrifice. It, it takes, a, we, we, we have to, uh, as we read there in Romans 12, you know, our, we have to become living sacrifices. As Jesus tells us uh, in Luke's gospel, we, we have to, to die to self. We have to take up our crosses. How often? Daily. Daily. Folks, if, if worshiping God is worth anything, it's worth everything, right? Well, this brings me to the 
third and final part of my message, and, and we're, we're short on time, so I'm going to go through here pretty quickly. What it means to worship in truth. As we just saw, when we talk about worshiping in spirit, we are talking about worship that makes an authentic, heartfelt, spiritual connection with God. When we worship in spirit, we rightly, rightly recognize those unique qualities that make God praiseworthy. And worship is the natural outflowing of, of our love, of our adoration, of our appreciation for those qualities. But we cannot rightly worship in spirit apart from the truth because genuine worship is a response to the truth. You see that? Genuine worship is a response to the truth. Worshiping in truth requires two very important things. It requires that we rightly understand who God is, and it requires that we rightly understand what He teaches. We see this, for example, in the depiction of worship from Acts 2.42, where we read that the saints devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the apostles' doctrine. Similarly, in 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul tells Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. In other words, much as it is here at Calvary Bible Church, in the New Testament church, the reading and exposition of God's Word was a, a central part of worship. And why is that? Why, was, why is it that... that they, they took time to not only read the word, but to explain it, to, to help people understand what it meant. Because it is through the word that we come to recognize, that we come to better understand, we come to better know God. Scripture is the means through, uh, through which God has revealed himself to his covenant family. Uh, scripture is the word of God. And in Psalm 119 and John 17, we learn that the, God of, uh, or that the Word of God is what? What is it? It's truth. The Word of God is truth. So you see, there is no worshiping in truth apart from the right handling of God's Word. I believe Paul had this idea in mind when he warned the church in Rome about false teachers. Listen to what he says uh, in Romans 16, beginning in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the, mind, they deceive the minds of naive people. You know, it's funny, I often hear people criticize conservative, reformed Christians like us and say that we are, are, are too dogmatic and that our uncom uncompromising view on the authority of Scripture and certain doctrines creates division in the church. Is that true? Are we creating division in the church by being dogmatic, by holding firm to what we believe? No. Holding firm to certain truths may divide us from people who claim to be Christian. It may keep us from worshiping with a cult. It may keep us from worshiping with a church where the theology is, is problematic. But it is false teaching that creates division in the church. Do you see that? It's false teaching that creates division. We do not separate ourselves from the church by holding firm to truth. We solidify our place in it. And let's face it, for those of us who value truth and have a, a, a somewhat solid understanding of God, of, of, of the gospel and, and the doctrines of grace, we do not worship the same God that the prosperity uh, preachers proclaim. We do not worship the same God that, uh, of liberation theology or the smiley-faced God that winks at sin and so on. We do not worship them because they are God's created in man's image. Uh, they are idols with Christian names. If we're going to worship these gods, we might as well worship the golden calf. 
Do you see that? Our understanding of biblical truth defines the God we worship. And so, if we do not worship God as He reveals Himself in Scripture, if our understanding is not based on a a rightly divided doctrinal understanding of who He is and what He teaches, then we are not worshiping God. We are worshiping something else. To quote MacArthur, Worship is an expression of praise from the depth of the heart toward a God who is understood through His Word. Well, there's so much more we could say, but we need to close. And, and I'd like to do so by just asking you again, in light of all that has been said here this morning, are you experiencing genuine worship in your life? Are you worshiping in spirit and truth? As I was preparing this message, the Westminster Confession came to mind. And uh, the most important question I think it answers, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? To what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? There is no higher calling, no more important responsibility than worshiping God. Let me say that again, because if, if you don't get anything else from the message here this morning, hear this. Worshiping God is our highest calling, our most important, our most important responsibility. We always like to think of, you know, people that, man, God's calling me to the mission field. That's my high call. You know what I'm saying? You know how people have this kind of, uh, uh, self-focused idea of what their calling is. You know what I'm talking about? Well, maybe God is calling you in, in, in some of these areas. But if you want to know what your most important call is, it is to worship God. Nothing we do is more important. And, and a lot of that, it is my prayer for all of us that, that Calvary Bible Church would be a body that truly worships well, not simply because of the great work of our worship team, not simply because of the great exposition we hear uh, week in and week out from our pastor, but because all of us, because all of us individually and collectively truly love and want to exalt God. Okay? Let's pray. Father, again, we are just so thankful for these truths. I, I, I thank you for this message. I thank you for this church and and. Lord, just pray that, that what is said and done here this morning, I pray that it will go forth and, and that it will edify. But more importantly, Father, I pray that it will bring glory and honor to you. So we pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.